Welcome to Bike Talk, streaming at KPFK Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, California, and Valley Free Radio in Florence, Massachusetts, also at WMBR in Cambridge. I'm Nick Richard. This is an international episode with several cities represented. We talked to Jessica in Los Angeles, Kyle in Chicago, Stacy in San Francisco, and Lucy in Vancouver. First, this episode, an interview with a member of the intentional community Los Angeles Eco Village, Jessica Fitzgerald Ruvalcaba, the first recipient of an electric cargo bike from Jimmy Lazama's Reciclos project. Reciclos empowers youth by training them in upcycling landfill-bound bikes and redesigning them for their communities. I uh, met my husband while bicycling in Los Angeles. Like I used to commute 10 miles each way every day. And I met him on a ride home when he was biking. I was going east, he was going south. I was at the red light, he got the green and he decided to turn around and say hello. Yeah, that's Adelina. She has a lot to say about that. I think if the lights would have been the other way, like we might never have met, but because like, you know, there was a little bit of a cosmic destiny in that. So, you know, we we met, we got married, um, we moved to the eco-village. Um, I had my first son and I always rode with him on my bicycle and on the trailer and he rides his own bicycle now. And then my second son, again, rode with him on my bike. And now I have three children and my youngest is uh, about 15 months. And I wanted a way to ride with all three of them together because it's hard to get three children on a bicycle. Um, so with Reciclos, Jimmy had this idea of like making the mom tank, we like to call it. Mom. So the mom, M-O-M. Okay. So our mom tank is an electric cargo bike. For him, it's like the culmination. It's like full cycle, right? So Jimmy used to take his son, Joaquin, who's now 12, on his bike, on a cargo bike. And Reciclos, you know, he wanted to partner with young people and teach them how to build cargo bikes. So the bicycles are also like recycled, reciclar, recycle. We use pieces of bicycles from the bicycle kitchen to build it up. And it's a real, like, local effort also the artwork on the on the mom tank is done by a local graffiti artist Cache. it's got a chicken on it he did the logo for bike talk oh cool yeah so he also painted the mom tank so it's like a real la bike scene bike in some ways i want to like change people's idea of cycling in LA, right? We all do. We all want everyone to bike in LA. Like we literally all want everyone to think that they can bike in LA. And for me and for Jimmy, working on this project together is an extension of that idea, right? If this mom can take her three kids around in Los Angeles on a bike, well, you can too. Maybe it's just one kid. So that's where we bore the idea out of, out of encouraging moms and parents to ride, ride bicycles, ride electric bikes. And we really hope that it's the electric bike that will start to shift people's idea and get people on bikes. For me, it's such an easy solution to our, our traffic woes here in Los Angeles. It's really nice to ride on bicycle. It really, really is. And it, it makes me sad that not more people think of it as an option. Or as many people that I know, they, you know, get married. They might be like hardcore cyclists before kids and then they get married, have kids, and then they all get a minivan. So let's make a bike minivan. And that's, that's where we're going with that. You're living in the Eco Village. I, I'm sure very few people know all of the bike institutions that have come out of this place. We are an intentional community, which um, intentional communities actually have a specific definition, which I'm not going to remember entirely right now, but they are human scale, they are replicable, they are committed to living in a more environmentally friendly way, which is broad. But for us here, it really means reducing our use of cars in Los Angeles it means composting, it means recycling, it means even if we're not all vegans, at least being conscious of our food intake and how that might affect our environment. And sometimes it also just means living with others and sharing. Um, here at the LA Eco Village, we've, I've been living for six years and I've really had a chance to immerse myself in community life. 
Yeah, and so the bike kitchen started in the kitchen here, and members of Eco Village started the LA County Bicycle Coalition and Cyclavia. Yeah, the bicycle kitchen started here in one of the kitchens, and that was one of Jimmy's efforts because there were a bunch of cyclists and uh, messengers specifically who didn't know how to fix their bikes so it started as a place to the i guess the hallways used to be littered with bicycles um, and people coming and coming together to learn how to fix their bicycles eventually that moved on to the space and heliotrope where there was a storefront with bicycle repair and now they have an even bigger space on virgil and fountain um, and it's still there helping the community learn to ride their bike learn to fix their bikes and the awesome community resource. Uh, the LACBC was started here. Uh, Joe Linton, who writes for LA Street Blogs, he lives here. He's a huge proponent of cycling. And I think his daughter, Maeve, who's now nine, has been to every Ciclavia. And Ciclavia was also started by a member of um, the eco-village, Adonia Lugo, who's no longer here. But she also wrote a book on the cycling culture in Los Angeles. So there's a deep history of bicycle activism here in Los Angeles. It's fitting that that we attract each other. Actually, funny, um, I once got invited to a party at the Eco Village before I lived here because Jimmy saw my bike, bike at a Trader Joe's and he left me a flyer on my bicycle. And I feel like you could just see the culture like growing. It's been interesting to to realize that you're a part of a growing movement of people. And it's going strong with Reciclos. Yeah. Your mom tank is electric, right? Yeah. Jimmy has worked with me. He's worked with another couple people. Um, not all of them are electric, but they, you can buy components to make them electric. And he's really trying to reach uh, groups of people who are marginalized and wouldn't normally have access to cargo bikes. Um, his effort is really leading the way in trying to find people who wouldn't normally find this as something accessible to them and reaching them. Anything more that you want to say about um, this project or your bike? or? It's a really cool bike and I'm really excited to use it. My hope is that I can ride it to take my son to school. He's going to a school that's a little bit further away. And if I could ride him to school every day and get just like one or two other families to like think that they can do this too, then then it's well worth the effort of learning. I guess one the, the only thought I had other than the significance of Eco Village in the world of uh, bikes, bike advocacy, was that when you're encouraging people to bike, also you have to advocate for safer streets, right? Yeah, and um, and one of the really neat things that we do here on our listserv is we remind each other to um, talk to our local politicians, to our city council members. We're involved in the um, Rampart Village National uh, Neighborhood Council. So living at the Eco Village, it's like a a nice way of reminding each other what you can do locally and what you can do personally. So sometimes it might be scary to ride in a new city. And for some people, getting over that bump of riding for the first time by yourself is really a big one. But if you got a friend or a neighbor who goes out with a bike ride for you or the times that we have done group rides, it's really, really encouraged um, cycling um, when the pandemic hit. Um, and we were all indoors, all of us would go on a bike ride every day. We would ride down 4th Street all the way down to next to LACMA, to this little turtle pond. And my kid, who was only four at the time on his tiny bicycle, was able to ride in the streets in Los Angeles. And so he'll grow up with this confidence of being on other forms of transportation, right? They grow up with this this ability to... To have courage in that space that isn't normally for them and advocate for that. So they'll grow up, you know, like I feel like I came into cycling you know, like in my late 20s, right? Early 30s. But they'll have come into it in their childhood. And so they'll be able to advocate for it much longer and with much more heartfelt sincerity. And I think that's important because as parents, we teach through doing mostly. And if we aren't doing the things that we want them to do if we weren't trying different forms of transportation then it's longer for them to learn of these ways to help their environment that they're um, inheriting i think it's really 
it's really, really important to make an effort to take take the bus, take the metro, not be scared, and not raise our children in fear of these transportations. Because then they'll advocate for them. They'll want them to be safer too. Um, we went on a ghost ride. I took my son on a ghost ride earlier this year. And Maeve went on it too. There was about four kids on it. And it's it's a heavy topic for little kids, right? But also, it's important. It's relevant. It's It makes it real. A ghost ride is a ride, a ride um, kind of commemorating or acknowledging a cyclist who was killed in a car accident. And so this one was specifically for someone who had died on Olympic. And so many riders dressed in white and we took over the street. There was enough riders, somewhere around 100, that we took over a major street. We took over Vermont going south and Olympic and then La Brea and to raise awareness, right? And it was safe for my children because there's so many other riders there that you have this, this safety bubble. But it's important to know that like cyclists are here, we're humans too, we're somebody's mom, we're somebody's sister, we're somebody's kid, and we all deserve a space on our streets. Thank you, Jessica, and enjoy your, your mom tank. Thank you so much. I'll send you some pictures. <laughs> that was Jessica Fitzgerald Rubalcaba in Los Angeles. Next, Kyle Lucas in Chicago. I'm one of the co-founders of Better Street Chicago, which is a grassroots nonprofit volunteer organization that's organizing for better streets for people who are walking, rolling, biking, and taking transit. We started in May of 2020 was when we launched. Initially, a few of us were organizing to get the community together to kind of imagine what a grassroots organization could look like. We had planned an event that sold out. And we were going to like live stream it for those who couldn't make it. And that was supposed to take place on March 13th, 2020. And for obvious reasons, that ended up not happening. (laughs) So we kind of took some steps back and did some of the planning work on our own digitally while we kind of navigated the new reality that the pandemic brought. So we founded this organization just because we kind of saw that there was a hole in advocacy in Chicago where people could really plug into the work and channel a lot of the anger and the frustration that they felt about the state of streets in Chicago. And there wasn't really like an activist angle. So a lot of us felt that frustration as well and decided instead of just being angry online about it all the time to take our anger and turn it into action. What kind of actions do you do? So we've organized some rallies and protests. We do email campaigns around projects in the city or in response to things that we think should change or to mobilize people around those things. So we have a few different campaigns that we have going on. One that we're really excited about that has taken off is called Plow the Sidewalks. So you're aware Chicago is a city with notorious winters, snow and ice. And the city's approach to shoveling sidewalks is that it's up to adjacent property owners and it just doesn't work. People don't shovel their sidewalks. And so we think that it should be a municipal service. So we got 5,000 people to sign a petition demanding the city turn it into a municipal service. Several city council members called Alderman here in Chicago supported, and we're working with another organization called Access Living. They're a disability rights organization in Chicago and working on actually drafting legislation that can be introduced into city council to get some pilots going on around the city and different wards. We are also organizing around the northern half of DuSable Lakeshore Drive, which is a highway that cuts through our lakefront parks. And currently the northern half is being reconsidered because it's crumbling and needs to be rebuilt. And so we're organizing around maybe we shouldn't rebuild a highway on our lakefront and maybe we can figure out a different mobility future and create a lakefront that isn't disconnected from the rest of the city and represents our climate realities. Then we also do some organizing around bicycle infrastructure. We've done some people-protected bike lane protests. 
In response to some tragedies in Chicago, we've most recently organized a rally in response to a string of really tragic deaths of some toddlers, which became even more tragic after that rally. We partnered with a couple of local organizations, Chicago Family Biking, and then we had the support of some bike lawyers as well as Active Transportation Alliance, which is one of the larger regional trans advocacy organizations here. So that's a few of the things that we do. And we're just getting started. We're only two years Mm -hmm. in and there's a lot of work to be done in Chicago. We did an interview on the toddlers with Rebecca of Chicago Family Biking. Mm -hmm. And it seems like if you're trying to get a message out that kids getting killed is seemingly one of the few things that really will move anything. Did you find that that was a moment when you could actually reach people? Yeah, I think when there's children dying from it, I think it brings it to a head for a lot more people and they begin to realize, oh, yeah, our streets are really dangerous. But I think there's also just been a lot more awareness around it. I've seen a lot more people who aren't terminally online about this kind of thing like we are, but I've seen a lot of people who have just, man, even just crossing the street is so scary right now. So I think people are starting to realize that our streets are just designed in a way that's really unsafe and that prioritizes cars over people. And one of the things that we're trying to do is give people the ability to express that and then the tools to communicate with their leaders what a different reality looks like. You know, a lot of people don't really have the understanding or have done the research on what exactly it looks like make a street safer. They just know that they want it to be safer. And so part of our goal is to make it easier for them to say that. I think the string of deaths of children was certainly powerful for a lot of people. We had the death of Rafi Cardenas, as well as Lily Shanbrook. And then just a few days later, after the rally that we held, there was another child named Jalon James who was killed. And then the week after that, there was another kid on the southwest side who was killed as well. On top of that, there were two elderly pedestrians who were killed. So it's been a really rough past month in terms of bike and pedestrian safety in Chicago. And I think it's been a wake-up call for a lot of people. So you don't do just bike stuff. You mentioned three things, and one was sidewalks, and one was the highway, and another was bikes. Yeah, we're not a cycling-specific organization. We're taking a look at the streets holistically, and bicycles are a really big part of that and are really important. But there's also other parts of the street that are really important as well. So sidewalks and bus rapid transit and bus shelters. There's all these different components that make up what a safe and vibrant and life-giving street looks like. And people who ride on bikes benefit from all of those other things as well. You're not only on your bike when you're going about the city. So it's not just about a protected bike lane, which is immensely important. But there's all these other components of the street. Once you lock up your bike and go to the coffee shop or go visit your friend or whatever, that you're using the whole street. And so all of it is important and vital. Yeah, that's something that we focus on is the entirety of the street. But yeah, protected bike lanes are a big focus for us. And Chicago really needs concrete barrier protected bike lanes. And we need a network of it citywide. The city has what they call a network, but it's really just the patchwork of bike lanes that kind of disappear across ward lines. So Chicago is split up into wards. That's how We elect our representation in Chicago, so 50 aldermen oversee 50 wards. And Mm -hmm. a lot of our street designs fall upon the opinions of aldermen, so they have a lot of power over the designs of our streets. So if you have an alder person who is really excited about bike infrastructure, like I do in my ward that I live in, Alderman Matt Martin, he's one of the really big champions for state streets in Chicago then you see more investment. But if you're in a different ward where the elder person isn't really as interested in it, or sometimes is just adversarial against bike infrastructure, then you won't receive it, even if CDOT proposes it. So there's a lot of problems with that in terms of building a network. We run into a lot of roadblocks just because there's elders who don't support it. But there's also an issue of whether or not the mayor supports it. And currently we have a mayor who does not have a vision for a better mobility future for Chicago and sometimes seems really actively against it. So Mayor Lori Lightfoot called Chicago a car city recently. 
and said that those who take CTA aren't on like planet reality <laughs> and outside of just being really offensive wow. for the fact that like 30% of Chicagoans don't own cars. And we have one of the biggest transit systems in the nation and we're flat as a pancake, which is perfect for building out cycling infrastructure. And that's the opinion of a mayor that we have right now. And so that really holds back our Department of Transportation as well, because they don't receive the funding. They don't receive the mayoral support for citywide initiatives. So they're just kind of left to trying to do this and that with different alders. But even then, we have issues with a vision within the Chicago Department of Transportation itself, because a lot of times in the wards where we have other people who are really supportive of it, they'll just propose designs that are really just mediocre or bad, just like dashed advisory lanes on streets where we could really implement something more robust. Sometimes we'll have street rebuild projects where they're going to build bike lanes and they're not going to build protected bike lanes when the street is just being completely rebuilt, not resurfaced, which is the perfect opportunity to reshape the street. And so we just have a real problem with a comprehensive vision and a plan for the future of Chicago. So that's something that we're trying to fight for and make demands for. And that's reflected across all parts of it, whether it's the CTA, which is really struggling right now and running at a portion of its capacity from pre-pandemic, even though the mayor claims that they didn't cut any transit service. When it comes to pedestrian safety, pedestrians are dying at alarming rates, got cars flying through bus stops and killing people. And we just need a holistic plan for the future. And we just don't have that. It seems like there should be a consensus among some group of people who know what streets need to be like that just hasn't filtered down yet. Is that safe to say that there's a group of people who share a vision and it's been identified at what streets need to be like? And it's just a matter of getting the rest of the decision makers to see it? Yeah, there's definitely a pretty broad consensus across advocates and activists in Chicago. So there's a lot of people who are really smart and dedicated and passionate about it. So that's something that we're really fortunate to have in the city. Is there's just a lot of people who really care and who show up and speak out when it comes to different projects or different ways to engage the city. There's been times where the Chicago Department of Transportation has shown that they know how to do things the right way and they know how to build good infrastructure. And sometimes they choose not to. And it's difficult to figure out why. And there's not a lot of transparency from the Department of Transportation on why that is. And so that's another thing that we're pushing for is transparency for them and getting them to tell us, what do you need from us? What's the roadblock here from actually radically transforming our streets? And we just don't get that from them. Chicago is kind of unique in that we used to have these two committee meetings. There was the MBAC, Mayor's Bicycle Advisory Committee, and there's one for pedestrian stuff as well. Started, I believe, under Mayor Rahm Emanuel. It's a way for there to be intergovernmental collaboration on these sorts of things, but the public was able to attend these meetings. So a lot of people would try and take their time out of their days to go, and it was a way to attempt to engage with them. Over time, a lot of agencies just stopped showing up to it. And so it ended up being the show and tell kind of thing, kind of pointless, kind of meaningless. So they would have different, what they called MBAC reps, who represented different parts of the city. And sometimes they would literally just go up and do a PowerPoint presentation on the history of paths on the Lakefront Trail or something like that. And it just wasn't really a meaningful way to engage with the Department of Transportation, but it was an outlet for it. And so people kept going because it was the only time that they were able to express their frustrations with them. When the pandemic hit, they canceled those meetings. We got a new commissioner, Gia Biaggi, and they said they were going to reshape the way that they were going to handle those. Most of the world just switched to doing Zoom meetings and stuff like that and happened very quickly and they just didn't do that. And they just kept saying, well, we're working on a meaningful replacement and back over and over Two years later, we just finally had our first replacement meeting. They're calling it the Chicago Mobility Collaborative. And they had literally hundreds of people join this call. And they came completely unprepared. And they basically were asking us to do their work for them. 
the whole meeting ended up being them asking us what a community engagement process looks like. So for two years, they said they were coming up with a meaningful replacement and then held us captive for an hour and a half in breakout rooms, <laughs> trying to tell them what that looks like and said. So there's all these people who are really engaged and really ready to just dive into the work and help out their city and are passionate about improving their city. And the Department of Transportation just keeps wasting everybody's time. It's really interesting. The knowledge is there. We know what safe streets look like. We know how to build it. So they just need to cut the excuses and start building it. All right. Well, Kyle, what can we look forward to now? Well, we got a little bit of hope recently. The Department of Transportation did make an announcement that they're going to be upgrading our existing protected bike lanes, which are just flexible plastic posts, vertical paint however you want to describe it. So they are going to be upgrading it with concrete, just like those little parking curbs you see parking lots, but they are going to be upgrading all the existing protected bike lanes. So that's about 15 miles, and then they're going to add an additional 10 miles by the end of 2023. So it's going to take them a year and a half. (laughs) So it's not everything we're looking for, but it's a step in the right direction. We've been told that they have more funding now than they've had before, so that's a good thing. So the hope is that our community is showing up and that we're pushing hard for change, and I think that we will see the change happen, but it's only going to happen if we keep coming together and demanding better from our city. Thank you, Kyle, so much for coming on, and hope to have you come on again. Thanks so much for having me. Hello, everybody. I'm Taylor Nichols, and this is Bike Talk. And today I am with the state of California's newest felon. I don't know if you're actually a felon or not. No, I'm not here yet. With Stacey Rendecker, who is the leader of Valencia for People, which is a street in San Francisco, and it's a movement trying to create open streets. And you were arrested yesterday. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, I can was. You, can you tell me, were you speeding in a car, robbing a bank? What were you doing? No, I was standing in the street as the closed street for a street fair called Sunday Streets came to an end. And when the band leader said, "Okay, that was the last song. We have to get out of the street. The cars are coming. I just stood there because, no, that's why I was there was to hand out flyers for this notion of closing Valencia to cars all day, every day. And so with every fiber of my being, I was like, I can't, I can't go. And so you didn't that's... plan this. You just on the spur of the moment, just thought <laughs> I'm not oh, going to no. get out of the street. You know, and it's funny when I was handing out flyers, somebody asked me, so what's next? And I'm like, well, go to the website and sign up. We're figuring it all out. I mean, like I've been saying this for years, but it just sort of came to a head that we got to organize on this. And so this was absolutely not planned, but I was joking and saying, I don't know, I'll chain myself to a barricade and not let them move it or something. I mean, I had no no idea or no plan. And I just happened to be at one of the ends and hearing that just sort of triggered me. Just so our listeners know, Valencia closes down once a year to traffic twice a year, you said? Yeah, like once or twice a year, there will be like Sunday Street. Sunday Streets is a concept once a month where a stretch of street in a certain neighborhood will be closed down so that people can bike and there can be streets for people. So we get that once a year, another celebration, A26 Valencia, great organization. They have an event once a year usually. And then that's it pre-pandemic. Then post-pandemic with shared spaces, which is our restaurants and retailers being able to take up permanent space on what were street parking spaces, curbside. They were shutting it down during the height of the pandemic. I think it was Thursday evening through Sunday evening, not continuous, but Thursday night set up, take down. Friday night set up, take down. Saturday night set up, take down. Sunday night set up, take down. And they would do that. And now we're down to just Fridays and Saturdays. And that's not even every block. It's like if they remember to put them out and stuff like that. So it's really wear and tear and a drag. And I'd like to get that alleviated. And the day that you were arrested, the street was closed at nine in the morning and then opened again to traffic. I keep saying closed. And really what I should be saying, the street was opened. It was open for people. Nine would be lovely. This is 11 to four. 11 to four is what they gave us. 
And I guess it ran over to like nearly 4.15 or something because my video started at 4.17 is when I thought to pull out my phone because something's going to happen. (laughs) I wonder if you can take us quickly through sort of what did happen. The police showed up and all of that. And I also wonder if you can address a little bit the privilege of being a white woman who is engaging in some civic involvement as opposed to possibly a young black man or something like that. Oh, yeah, 100%. So a woman who was an organizer of some sort, volunteer employee, I'm not sure, was coming through on a bike and telling people to get off the sidewalk. And I was like, nope, I can't. And so she called the officers that were biking behind her. Can they help to remove me? There were four officers that were talking to me and trying to get me to go onto the sidewalk. Then two of them said that the other two could go ahead. If you watch the video, I have it on YouTube and Twitter. It's hilarious. Can you give us your Twitter handle? Oh, yeah, it's hilarious. It's driving Ms. Stacy with a Z. I worked in the automotive industry. Fun fact. So anyway, it's driving Ms. Stacy, S-T-A-C-E-Y. And of course, that's a joke on driving Miss Daisy, I guess, right? Yeah, exactly. So you can see the video that I got, which is the woman saying to the police, the police riding up and then them saying so many funny things like, oh, you need to move over to the side of the road. The cars are coming. It's not safe. Collisions happen here all the time. We want you to be safe. People get hurt and killed here. We want you to be safe. And they said it so many times. It was like, you know, you're kind of proving my point. Okay. And I can get kind of feisty, but I was uncharacteristically cool. Yeah, you were very calm. And the police were also calm, I thought. It was actually a pretty uneventful interaction until the one cop actually arrested you and put your hands behind your back and and your wrist is cut by the handcuffs. So I'd say it was calm until that guy snapped. Right. And he was just not having it. And he forcibly turned me around and they put the cuffs on really hard. And for context, I am a middle aged white woman. I'm five foot two and 120 pounds. There is no harm that is coming to anyone. I mean, I have a mom bag, jeans, sneakers and a T-shirt. Like I'm so not your risky type. (laughs) Right. Anyway. They spared no force in getting the cuffs on me and walking me over to the sidewalk. And there I stood. And I was calm until the one officer did that. And then I screamed my head off for Safe Street Rebel, the people that do such great work who I have recently joined up with and admire. They are a take no prisoners kind of action. Every time someone is killed by a car crash, We go out to that intersection and stop traffic and let people know about it. That is usually just a timed light cycle and things like that. And we'll do one where we'll hold cars for a light cycle and tell them why we're doing it to honor the person that was killed there. And And your cars just go nuts being held for one traffic light cycle? It runs the gamut. Most will deal with it because you're on a megaphone telling them why, but there are some that heal out after that because they're so annoyed being held for one minute. And this is part of the problem. You cannot trust drivers as far as you can throw them. And this is universal. Believe me, you change when you are in the car and you're driving. The windshield perspective is tremendous. And I'm talking about myself. Absolutely. It has taken me years to unlearn this. And still, like, I have to take a deep breath. This isn't your speedway, Stacey. If I'm on a highway, I'm on a highway. Okay. But if I am in around town, it's very difficult when the streets are designed For you to go fast, when you have all those lanes and that open space ahead of you, you just want to get where you're going. Right, right, right. And it's completely natural. And I understand it. It is also inexcusable. We have people. We are the second most densely populated city in the United States. We should not be permitting this in our streets. And that does not mean having police do everything. This means having the infrastructure. So it is self-enforcing so that you cannot drive in a manner that harms people. And, oh, you had mentioned San Francisco is not the most diverse city, but we do have diversity within our group. And I, as a middle-aged white woman, am able to stand my ground 
and know nothing's going to really happen to me. I mean, come on, the mom, like you're really going to go to town and hurt the mom. No, it's not going to happen. Whereas if your immigration status is in question, if you have a record in the past. If a young man of color in a hoodie. You're a young man of color. Yes. You cannot expect that you will get that much grace. Right. Well, one thing I'm really interested in, and I think a lot of people in the alternate transportation movement are interested in, is when do we cross over from trying to change laws and trying to change attitudes to real civil disobedience? And I've been involved in the Safe Streets movement for 13, 14 years, and it is going so slow that it is difficult to watch. And I think partly what I responded to in watching your Twitter videos was there's just a point where I've had enough and I need to make a statement. And that's what I saw you go through. I read the Twitter feed and there were some people who had backlash against you and said, who do you think you are and what are you doing? doing oh yeah, this? I've been blocking vigorously today. Right, that's right. for sure. I and I can understand some of those viewpoints, but just like the civil rights movement, which I actually think the alternate transportation movement is a civil rights movement, certainly on a different scale than the 60s and 70s civil rights movement. But there's a certain point where we've just had enough. And if it was your child or parent dying in a traffic crash, I think you would feel very differently about some of these safe streets. And as we know, signs don't work. We have to reconfigure our streets. And I know you said you didn't plan this, but I wonder at what point did you decide I'm going to go all the way? I'm going to make them handcuff me and take me out of the street, no matter what that means, because it could mean a thousand dollar fine or a five thousand dollar fine, or it could mean an afternoon sitting in a police station waiting to be processed and you can't get out until you see a judge or something like that. I mean, it could have been more of a headache than it turned out to be. Well, I mean, I have two teens, so they can certainly fend for themselves for at least a brief period of time. So that was not as much a concern to me. And I have a fair degree of naivete. That whole afternoon thing or whatever didn't really cross my mind. I didn't know it would take that long or whatever. I didn't know what would happen. I did not plan this. I have zero experience in this. That's the first time I've ever had handcuffs thrown on me like that. My ex sent a message to my daughter because I didn't tell them. He sent it to her today. And he said, are you okay? Is mommy okay? And she's like, what? She got arrested. (laughs) And I was like, oh my God. And my daughter's like, what? And I was like, go look, you can see it. So no, I was not really concerned about that. I guess I should have been, but. I'm asking partly because I could see myself making the same stand. And then at a certain point saying, okay, and just walking off the street. and Oh, sorry. Yeah. She said, why were you in the street? What did you? And I said, Annabelle, I was already in the street. The street fair ended around me. It's not like, oh, I'm going to go do this. I didn't move. I had been standing there listening to a band and walking around handing out flyers. I didn't go act upon this and plan it. I just didn't leave when they told me to leave. So when I heard, we've got to get out of the street because the cars are coming is like, no. No, I'm not. I'm done. I'm done. Well, to end, I wonder if you could give us your Twitter and Valencia4people.com, some of those websites and how people that are listening can be involved in not only advancing your cause in Valencia, but also their own causes in their own neighborhood. Because here in Los Angeles, we have Ciclavia. And it was yesterday where they closed down a good portion of the downtown streets. But then again, it's only from nine till about three. Then they open it up to traffic after that. Yeah, I guess that's the thing, you know, you're saying, when is it enough and whatever, and how long do we have to be at this? And that's the thing that I'm really looking to do is to get as many people who are working on this to sort of band together, because I feel like we're working in our own silos, trying to change block by block with varying cast of characters that are in agencies, electeds, et cetera. And you might have times where you'll have people that are more sympathetic and progressive about it. And then you'll have times where it feels like a drought and nothing happens. And we have to stop doing this. We are wasting so much time and energy. And lives, I would argue. And lives. Yes. 46,020 people were killed on roads in the United States last year alone. And millions are injured every year. And we just shrug our shoulders as if there is nothing we can do about it. And that is just wrong. 
and we have the tools to do things about it. It just requires people chilling out, understanding it will take a little longer. You will drive a little slower. I'd love us to get to a point where we have roundabouts and light timing and such based on traffic volume that can change dynamically so that you're basically running a green wave through your entire city if you do have to drive. And if you don't, take a bike, walk, take the bus. You will be healthier for it. Our cities will be better for it. And we need to stop burning the planet. We cannot see the confluence of things that are coming together and act to make our cities better, safer, more equitable. It's just astounding. The stranglehold that the automotive industry and that car culture and oil and gas have over our local state and nationally elected politicians. If you go to our website, it's Valencia, the number four, people.com, Valencia4people.com. We have pictures of places that have done this all around the country and around the world. And it's glorious. And these are just the ones that match up to map to Valencia, the ones that are, you know, more like commercial corridors, et cetera. There are other types of streets like you would have here in San Francisco, the Great Highway, or all of Central Park is car free in New York City. We got one and a half miles in Golden Gate Park. It's a travesty that they do this under the guise of access is insane because the most accessible thing you can do is to have lots of flat paved space without cars so that people who do need to roll can do so. And whether that's a wheelchair or a bicycle. Yes, exactly. I'm sorry. I was meaning a wheelchair, but yes, bikes too. We need to start thinking differently and we need to be doing it more broadly. And it needs to be without exception. It cannot be this like, oh, based on your local neighborhood's elected representative and their feelings on the measure, it needs to be more in broad strokes. It needs to be connected networks. We need to be doing this faster or we are not going to see the changes that we need to. More people will be hurt. More people will die. Air pollution. We are seriously burning the planet and we need to move around in lighter and safer ways. We need to make our cities more inviting and hospitable. We need our kids to have places to safely play and be a kid. And we have to start doing it a lot faster than we are. It's unsustainable. Well, Stacey Randecker, thanks for taking a stand yesterday in Valencia. And thanks for coming on Bike Talk today. I really appreciate both your optimism and your dedication. So thank you very much. And one last time, it's Driving Ms. Stacey at Twitter, correct? Yeah, on Twitter. Yep. Um, Valencia for people, the number four people, same on Twitter. And I will also always throw in a pitch for Safe Street Rebel. They're the ones who really inspired me as well. Great. Well, thanks very much. Thank you, Taylor. That was Stacy Rendecker, interviewed by Taylor Nichols. Next, Lucy Maloney asked Twitter how to map a safe bike route. She also talks about the memorial ride for cyclist Augustine Beltran. Lucy is in Vancouver. How are you doing, Lucy? Pretty well, thanks. One of your tweets just caught my eye, which was you were trying to find a route that wouldn't endanger you too much. That's uh, crowdsourcing uh, travel advice, which is unfortunately what cyclists sometimes need to do because uh, navigation options don't really cater to our needs. And did Twitter come through? Oh, really? Yes, <laughs> definitely. Some very enthusiastic responses, lots of great advice. What'd you, what, so you took a route that people gave you? Yeah. So the, my main concern was the last part of the ride because um, Kent Avenue in South Vancouver is, uh, it's got like a painted bike lane and is notorious for having lots of uh, very large trucks roaring along with very little uh, <laughs> respect for cyclists' lives and limbs. So uh, I thought I would get some advice about how to get to my destination, avoiding the really busy roads that haven't really been um, properly adjusted to cyclists' needs yet, despite our efforts as cycling advocates. And as you say, it worked out? Yeah, it was really good. I managed to find quieter streets and uh, get to within a couple of blocks of my destination without having to brave any busy roads. And this wasn't something that was on a map that you consulted? It's very hard to read the street names and sometimes on Google Maps as well. So 
sometimes you're trying to work out where the cycling route is compared to the address that you have. So you might know the cross street, but it might be hard to read, identify that street on the map. So that's that's just another problem. So uh, I, uh, it's always best to get locals advice. I mean, I was aware that um, Kent Avenue was a, a terrible street to ride on and very dangerous and that cycling advocates in Vancouver have been really pushing to get a safe route along there and that hasn't happened yet. So it's just a good idea to always get some advice from the locals who cycle uh, all the time in that area. So tell me about biking in Vancouver. And I saw that you were at a vigil. Yeah, unfortunately, last week, a cyclist was run over by a truck driver. It was an articulated truck. And in Victoria, which is the capital city of British Columbia, the day before yesterday, there was another cyclist knocked over by a truck and almost went under the back wheels in exactly the same circumstances. So we're all a bit upset at the moment about the danger of um, large semi-trucks whose back wheels follow uh, a a different route from the front wheels when they're turning right and why it is that the, the Canadian government hasn't mandated side guards yet. And the one in Victoria uh, had a red light, so he wasn't supposed to be turning right, which has also prompted discussions about um, banning right on red, which is not a thing in Australia where I'm from originally. I think it's super dangerous and I really can't believe it's legal to turn right on red. Mm-hmm. And what are side guards? How does that work? I heard about that recently. So there's a big gap in an articulated truck, like a semi-truck. There's a really big gap between the tray of the truck and the wheels. So that's where cyclists can end up under the wheels. And if there were side guards, which I think um, is mandated in Europe, it knocks the cyclist out of the way. So they might end up with injuries, but they don't end up being literally run over by the back wheels of the truck because they get um, underneath the truck. So that's the idea of side guards. And this particular incident seemed to attract a lot of attention. They saw it in a lot of places on Twitter. Agustin was his name? Yeah, Agustin. He was a Mexican guy who'd come over to do his PhD at the University of British Columbia. And um, the crash actually happened about a block up the road from where I live. And my husband was riding his bike to work and he pulled over and called me because it was pretty distressing. He passed not that long after the crash occurred and I got on Twitter and uh, said, oh, my God, terrible news, and uh, and it kind of snowballed from there. I mean, memorial rides are something that we do as a cycling community. It really shakes you up that somebody can just die like that. And, you know, he was doing all the things that we would be criticised for if we weren't doing them, like he was wearing a helmet, he was wearing a bright orange jersey he was in the green marked section of the crossing it was the intersection between two separated bike paths it had a bulb out it had all the infrastructure that we as cycling advocates ask for but all it takes is um, a truck driver who is maybe not looking or um, going too fast or um, the fact that the right turn of the truck wasn't separated from the cyclist going through, you know, maybe the light sequencing should should be different. Uh, it doesn't take much for a cyclist to end up under the back wheels of a, a truck and, and that's the end. So it's very upsetting and uh, as a consequence of it really resonating with especially cyclists that go through downtown Vancouver all the time there was a really big turnout. I mean, it was raining and we still had, you know, uh, I guess it was over 100 people at least at a guess. Agustin's family came from Mexico and his poor fiance who'd been riding behind him and witnessed the whole thing, she rode too, and which is unbelievable because she wasn't feeling super confident about getting back on her bike after that. And uh, it was a very emotional and sombre and beautiful event. He was doing his PhD on something bike related or safe streets related. 
Yeah, I think he'd done his undergraduate degree. He was in economics and he'd done his undergraduate thesis on um, the economic effects of cycling. And he'd just been hired as a research assistant for another um, guy who cycles for transport who was also very upset. And you can imagine it's just had a lot of ripple effects because Vancouver's a pretty small town and uh, I guess a lot of his Mexican friends were there and there was also a memorial ride actually in the city of Mexico on Sunday morning a few hours before we did our uh, memorial ride. I guess it just resonates that um, whenever anybody's killed on the roads, it has really big effects outside the town where it happens and amongst the family and friends and the whole cycling community really feels it. Can you take us out with something positive? (laughs) Well, yesterday I went for a ride along a new bike path in Vancouver and it was, I followed a woman who was wearing a no helmet, normal clothes on a step through upright bike. And that just made me feel very positive because in Vancouver, more and more people are cycling for transport every year, especially with e-bikes, getting over the mental barrier of riding up the hills. And it's really opening it up to a lot more people. And uh, it's really awesome to see old people and kids and families and people who don't look like sports racers who are getting out there and cycling for transport and pleasure. Lucy, thank you for joining in and we will see you back online. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. That was Lucy Maloney in Vancouver and that was Bike Talk. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our editor, Kevin Burton. Visit our website, biketalk.org and have a nice week. Get on your bike Sit on the seat Put your feet on the pedal And run all around, run all around Get on your bike Oh, catch yourself a bike. Oh, catch yourself a bike.